Open your copy of God's word to the book of 1 Peter. You can follow along using the YouVersion Bible app by going to more and then hitting the events function and then geolocating onto Redeemer Baptist Church or you can follow along on the analog paper notes uh, or you can just follow along on the screen as we go to God's word in our series that we have entitled Being God's People. We're studying First and Second Peter as he talks to us about how we are called to be the people of God in a world that is not necessarily ready or longing for God's people to act like God's people in that world. And that's a world that's not too different from our own. So we're going to be reading today from 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 through 9. 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 through 9. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And this is God's holy, inerrant, eternal word. May he add his blessing to its reading and its proclamation. As we have been talking about what it means to be God's people, we have been encountering the reality, as Peter says twice in this passage, that we, God's followers through Jesus Christ, have been made into his new priests. Jesus, the great high priest, has come. He becomes our great intercessor so that we don't need anyone to mediate between us and God But then he does something amazing. He takes the church, his followers, and says, now you are my priests in this world. And Peter uses that phrase exactly twice in this passage. And we're going to see, as Rachel so so already well laid it out, uh, that priests do essentially three things that Peter highlights in this particular passage. And the first is this, that priests believe God's work and word. 
God's work and word. Now, you may say, why are you starting here? Well, partly because Peter starts there, and it's important for us to have the integrity to say, what is the passage actually saying to us and to the world and to God's people down through the ages? But also, I want you to think about it this way. Isn't the world already tired of hypocrisy? In fact, if you were to go back, and I didn't actually put this on a slide, but if you were to go back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, Peter says, so put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy. There's a problem in the world when people who say they follow Jesus don't actually follow him. Or people who say they believe what Jesus taught, but they don't actually believe that. And there's, you know, I saw an interview this week with uh, Philip Yancey, who's a, a great Christian writer and author, and he was being interviewed, and this, this person who's not a believer was talking to him about uh, the rise of the evangelicals within uh, political realities in America. And, and Yancey just stopped this interview and said, you need to understand, those people are not followers of Jesus. He said, some of them are, but simply taking up the language of Christianity, calling yourself an evangelical, or even saying that you're a follower of Jesus doesn't actually make you a follower of Jesus. The question is, do you actually believe everything that Jesus taught you, not just the things you like to hear? And are you going to be transformed by the work of Jesus and his word. So putting away all hypocrisy, we as God's priests in this world have been called to, into the question first and foremost, do you believe what you are saying? Do you believe the truths that you proclaim? Now, can you imagine anything worse than a preacher or a pastor or a, a priest? We don't use that term generally within the Protestant church, except on the Anglican end of the church. Um, but if you were to find somebody and, and, and go to them and you say, well, you're, you're a priest, you represent God here on earth, do you actually believe the stuff that you're saying? A friend of mine had this traumatic encounter with his father who served for over 30 years as a missionary. And he saw his father in his later years not living in accordance with the truth of the gospel. And he went to him and he said, do you, do you actually believe everything that you said? And he said, no, I never really believed it. Is he that different than some of us? Peter says, if you're God's priest, you believe in God's work and word through Jesus. Specifically, he says this, that if you're really a follower of Jesus, the first thing that's happened to you is that you've encountered Jesus. You know, Peter wasn't looking at Jesus as an abstract idea. Peter said, hey, I've been fishing with Jesus. I watched him feed 5,000. I saw what he did with the lepers, and I watched him die, and I watched him come out of a tomb. 
He encountered the reality of Jesus, and then he said, we've not only encountered him, he has become the long-promised cornerstone that is alive on which God is going to build his work, his kingdom in this world. So if you go to verse four, you read this, as you, notice Peter puts the finger out there, as you come to him, you come to Jesus, he's a living stone, he's not dead, he's not static, he's not passive, he was rejected by men, but in the sight of God, he is chosen and precious. He picks up the language of the prophet Isaiah who had prophesied that God would set a cornerstone on which his people would be founded and his kingdom would come. Which brings you and me to this question. What will we do with the claims of Jesus? What will we do with the claims of Jesus? Uh, See, for Peter, this language matters because Peter had an encounter with Jesus where Jesus talked about the cornerstone reality of what people were going to do with him. He asked this question to Peter and his friends. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus to you and to me? Do you believe that he is in fact the great high priest that God has set between man and the world? The, the, the claim that Jesus had made. Now, Jesus made this very clear. Jesus, as C.S. Lewis so incredibly points out, did not give us the option of believing in him as a good moral teacher. He did not give us the option of believing in him as some decent guy who got a few things wrong. Jesus made claims like this. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You want to get to God? I'm the only way you're going to get there. He doesn't leave us with an option to believe in him in some other way. Either he was lying or he was deluded or he actually was what he said, right? So if he is who he said he is, then will you and I actually believe that reality that he is God's promised savior? What was Peter's response whenever he said to him, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then the question comes to us whether or not will we will build our lives on this reality. Lots of people say, you know, I don't want to pay for my sins. Somebody else is going to pay for it. Seems like a good deal. And I don't have to earn it. I don't have to do anything to achieve that forgiveness. Fine. I'll take it. Seems like a fair deal to me, and I get to live the rest of my life however I want. And that's the way some people present Christianity. Well, it contains truths. There's nothing you can do to earn your forgiveness, your relationship with God. You can't fix it yourself. Jesus has become God's mediator. He's lived the perfect life you could not have lived. He died an atoning death that you could not have died. He paid the penalty for your sin and he grants you all of his righteousness and he does it without charging you anything. That is all true, praise God. But he doesn't leave you with the option of saying, my life 
will be unchanged. He doesn't give that option to you. In fact, he says, I am the great reality on which you are being called to build your life. And if you genuinely believe this, that I am God and I am the one that's making a right relationship with you and God now and forever, I'm the great reality that you will spend an eternity with. The question is, are you living your life right now based on that reality? And if we aren't, why not? So he quotes Isaiah here and he quotes from the Psalms when he says this, Behold, I am laying in Zion, he's speaking of God, here, a stone, a cornerstone, chosen by God, precious to God, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Will you believe that Jesus is intended by God to be the reality on which you build your life? The church's foundation is based on this Believe. We know this because Peter, who's writing this maybe some 30 plus years after this encounter, when Jesus says to him, who do you say I am? And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This is what Jesus says back to him. You are Petros, which is his nickname, Rock, right? He's the original Rocky, Okay. So long before Rocky Balboa, there's Petros. You are Petros, and on this rock, I shall build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And when he says this rock, he's talking about this cornerstone truth of who I am and what I have done. I build my church on that reality. And that means that unbelief in Jesus will lead to an inevitably unsustainable and unworthy life. You can't live a life that is stable apart from Christ. You can't say, I follow Jesus, and then build your life on pursuit of career, pursuit of sexual relationships, pursuit of worldly happiness. You can't build your life on that and then say, I follow Jesus. You're building your life on something other than that. So Peter goes on to say this from the Old Testament. He says, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You can reject it all you want, but if you reject it, you're rejecting the key piece that you need to actually live. And that is an offensive statement. Lots of people are like, wait, wait, wait. You know, I can believe that Jesus was a good guy. I believe he's a good teacher. You can follow him, but I can follow Buddha. I can follow the Hindu pantheon. I can follow, uh, you know, just some sort of like new age crystals or something like that. And it's offensive to say to people, I'm sorry, you don't have a relationship with God if you haven't encountered and uh, Jesus Christ and built your life on what he has done for you. That's an offensive thing. Well, it was offensive 2,000 years ago. Peter goes on to say, if you're going to reject it, Jesus will become to you a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. You'll always get tripped up by the truth claims of Jesus if you reject that he is intending to be the foundation for all reality. And here's 
here's some kind of maybe not great news for us. Without God's grace, all of us will seek to build our lives on insufficient truth claims, and they will always trip us up. You and I cannot function without waking up tomorrow morning and believing that there are certain concrete realities that we must trust in. Now, that's as simple as you believing that the coffee machine's gonna make coffee whenever you turn it on, or you're gonna get in a car and the wheels are gonna hold you up and you're gonna drive someplace, rest, or the chair's gonna hold you up when you sit down in it, right? But all of us build our lives around things that we believe are fundamentally true. And without God's grace, we will all choose to build our lives on insufficient truth claims. So there is good news for you and for me because Peter says in verse nine that we are a chosen race, chosen to receive God's grace, chosen to encounter the reality of God's good news. But for those who don't, this is their truth. If you look in verse eight, you're gonna see in the uh, second part of verse eight that those who reject Jesus stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined. Wow. That's hard, right? But for those who have been graced by God's Holy Spirit, the truth becomes a blessing and a solid foundation for life eternal. Matthew 16, 17, Jesus says this to Peter, who's writing these words. And he says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You're blessed because you know the truth and you're building your life upon that reality. And all of us who believe these truths, whether you want to or not, you have all been made into priests. Congratulations. If you believe everything that I just said, I now ordain you. Here you go. But I don't have to do it because Jesus has already done it. You've been ordained into the priesthood. All who believe these truths have been made into priests. Look in verse five. Peter says this, you yourselves are a holy priesthood. Verse nine, so verse five, then down verse nine, you are chosen race and a royal priesthood. The word you there is not individual, it's plural. And he's saying all y'all, <laughs> all y'all, in the church have been made into God's priests in this world, which has some amazing implications for you and me. Now, there's a lot more that we could unpack there, but I want us to take a look at two things beyond believing that priests must do. Fundamentally, priests worship God, right? Imagine a priest showing up to some worship ritual offering a sacrifice or leading some worship song or inviting people to come to worship God, but they themselves not entering into worship themselves. The Old Testament priests were required to personally worship God themselves before they invited God's people into worship. 
They had to commit their own sets of sacrifices and do their own works of prayer and their own acts of worship before they could invite God's people into worship. And this is the task of every one of us. You know, I said earlier that our church's purpose is to glorify God, to bring him the praise and honor that he is due. Well, that's what priests do. Priests worship God. And Peter says that we are a holy priesthood to do something, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, there is a ton of information in God's word about this, but let me kind of just unpack it to us briefly in this way. All of creation is intended to praise and worship God. You could read in Psalm 150, which we did at the beginning of this service. You could read in Psalm 28, for example, or 29, where it says, Ascribe to the Lord all of you angels. Or you could read in, in, in so many places throughout God's word, all, all these truths, Psalm 103, Psalm 145, Psalm 148, over and over again, they teach us the same thing, that everything that has breath or exists is intended to praise God. Now, the reformers put it this way, in the Westminster Catechism, they said, what is the chief end of man? It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Why do you wake up tomorrow morning? It's to worship God and enjoy him. Why do you go to work? To worship God and enjoy him. Everything that you and I do is intended to bring praise and worship to God. And if that is true of inanimate objects like mountains and trees, which are called to praise God, and the stars in the sky, which are called to praise God. And if that is true for all of creation, the sea is commanded in the Bible to praise God. If that is true of all of creation, how much more true is it that God's graced and chosen priests in this world are in intended to praise him all day long with every fiber of their being in every situation at all places at all times. Infinitely more. That's what we're intended for. We're intended to praise God with everything. If you go to the book of Isaiah, God says this in Isaiah 43. He says, my chosen people, the people who I formed for myself, they I formed to declare my praise. To declare my praise. God chooses people to be the, declaration, the declarers of his praise. And we are called to do that. The first thing we do as priests is we worship God and we invite others into that worship. And we do that with our lives with our very lives. That's why Paul would write to the Roman church in Romans chapter 12, verse one. He's going to say that we are to offer up to God as his people by his mercies to present our bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual service. And we're called to do that a little bit 
behind on my clicking here. Uh, we're called to do that in every area of our lives. Um, Peter is going to make this explicit. So flip in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, and you'll read there this, where Peter says, in everything, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Do you see any exceptions to that? In some things, God should be glorified. On Sunday mornings, between 10.30, and maybe I won't complain too much if it extends a little bit past noon. Do you see that says in everything, God is to be glorified. To him belongs all glory and dominion now and forever, forever and ever. So today, tomorrow, as long as God gives us breath, in, or, in everything that we do, we are to bring God glory. Paul's going to write to the Corinthian church, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, you do it all to the glory of God. Paul's going to write to the Colossian church and say the exact same thing. He's like, whatever you do, do it all so that God gets the praise and the glory. Priests believe the good news of Jesus and the response needs to be an authentic, overflowing delight that comes out of our lives in praise and worship. And we're to do it with all of our being. Not some part of us, but all of our being. In fact, Scripture would say our inmost being. The part of us that is so uh, attuned to who God is from the very depths of our being, we are to praise God. So scripture will say that we are to do, to bless the Lord with our soul and with all that is within us. We are to bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. So priests believe these truths and we then respond to these truths with abundant and overflowing worship. Hey guys, you're going to have to take over because this thing is not working. So uh, the, uh, we now come to the reality that that worship cannot be contained in a private way. We must build our lives in such a way that they become places of worship that other people are drawn into because priests build holy places for other people to encounter God. The goal is not private worship. The goal of worship is always designed to bring other people in to encounter God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Peter says, You yourselves, like living stones, 
are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Notice how he combines priesthood with all of us being temples of the living God. We, the church, are are God's temple. Paul would say this expressly to the Corinthians. And by the way, if you ever wonder if Paul and Peter are saying different things, just go to the end of Peter's books whenever he says to the church, hey, by the way, I'm saying the same thing that Paul says, and you guys should pay attention to him because it's God's word. And here, Paul is saying the same thing to the Corinthian church. 2 Corinthians 6.16, Paul says, we, God's people, are not just priests, we're the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them, and I will walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, if that sounds weird to you, don't worry, it sounded weird to first century people, and if not, even weirder, because they all had priests, and they all had temples. To be in the Roman world, the Mediterranean world of that time, meant that you were going to understand what a priest was, and what a temple was. Numerous scholars have pointed out that when the church emerged, people would go to ordinary Christians, and they would say, okay, so you say you follow this Jesus guy who are your priests? And they say, we are. But you don't have any fancy duds. You don't, you're not wearing a special costume. No, don't need that. Jesus is my great high priest. He appointed me to be a priest under him. I'm the priest. Okay, okay, okay. So you're a priest. Where's your temple? Well, it's right here. I'm the temple. I'm the place that God indwells and lives in this world. Wherever I go, there is God's temple. And this is not a work that human beings can do. I can't make myself a priest, and I certainly can't make myself into a temple of the living God. This is the Holy Spirit's work. So Peter says, you are being built. Somebody's doing this work of building you into a spiritual house. Paul would say the same thing to the Ephesians in Ephesians 2.22, when he says, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God is doing the work of making you into a temple for him. And you go, great. I just sit back, right? No, because God is always inviting us to join him in his work. It is not just the work of the Holy Spirit. It is God's work in and through us. It's a work in which we participate. And again, Paul's helpful here because when he's talking about this to the Corinthian church, he says, we are God's fellow workers, We've joined him in building up the living temple of God. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, which was the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and now someone else is building upon it. Notice he says, I did a work, you guys encountered God, you're God's temple, and then now other people have joined in the work of building you up into being God's temple. And then he says, let 
each one, that's everyone, take care how he builds upon this foundation, upon the good news. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So, here's what I'm saying to you. Priests believe, priests worship, and we join God in the work of building up his temple, which is the church. Did you hear what I just said? There is no such thing as a passive Christian. Maybe I should be more explicit. There is no such thing as a passive, obedient Christian. You have been invited into the great work of the living God to build up his temple, which is his church, the people of God, in your own life first and then, then into the lives of other people, to join into this great communal building project. Priests create space for others to worship and encounter God. That's what we do. You know, when your setup team comes in on Sunday mornings early and we start throwing up all this equipment and everything, we pray. And one of our constant prayers is that we will create a space for other people to encounter God. That's a very tangible thing, right? But are you doing that with other people's lives? Are you creating space so that people who encounter you say, there is something beyond you, there's something in your life that calls me to encounter and worship God? In Romans chapter 15, Paul said, I want to pray this prayer. Now listen to Paul's prayer for the church. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you, the church, to live together in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. So you get along so well, right? What's the outcome? That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The outcome of the church's unity is an overflowing praise to God. Therefore, he says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Notice how he connects the ideas here. He says, when I'm praying for you, I'm praying that you'll be united so that your lives sing forth praise together to God in a singular gospel message to the world with all its diversities and harmonies. And he says, therefore... <coughs> You welcome one another into relationship with God. What does that look like concretely? It means that in public and together in our homes and in all the places that God sends us, we commit ourselves to living a life that invites people into an encounter with God. Is that what you are living? Are you living in such a way that people are being invited to encounter the living God? Or is your faith something you say, well, you know, I don't like to talk about my faith. I don't like people to, you know, don't mix religion and work or religion and politics or religion and this and that, you know. Those are all silos. Folks, that is not Christianity. 
It just isn't. Look at the early church. Look in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Here's the church. They devote themselves. They give themselves over to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. And what happens when they do this? Awe or worship comes upon everyone. Wonder comes upon them. And many wondrous signs are being done through the apostles. All who believe are together, united, and they have all things in common. They sell their possessions and belongings. They distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Overflowing generosity occurs as they do this. Day by day, every day, they attend the temple together and break bread in their homes. That means they gathered in large corporate environments and they met in their houses in small groups. They receive their food with glad and generous hearts. They praise God, and what's the, inca- what's the outcome? They have favor with people. Isn't that shocking? And then it goes on to say, the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. When you live a life that is inviting others into the worship of God and people see that you believe a truth that you can build your life on and you are actively worshiping that God, guess what? It's magnetic. It's engaging. It's dynamic. And it draws people in to believe in the Jesus you believe in. That means we come with an invitation to an openness to to invite people to encounter God. The church continues, by the way, if you want to say, well, that was just for a short while. No, keep reading in the book of Acts. You'll find that that this became their dominant pattern. Acts chapter 5, for example, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hand of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. As the church continued to live out this kind of engaging reality, people are being drawn to faith. So here's my question. Is the way you're living your Christian faith inviting and drawing people in to encounter the God you worship? Not incidentally, but intentionally. Well, I sure hope my neighbor knows they're, I'm, you know, I'm nice. I watered their flowers while they were gone on a trip. Yeah, they did that for you too, and they don't believe in Jesus. That's not going to lead anybody to Christ, folks. Are you going to intentionally be inviting people in to encounter the truth of Jesus Christ? So priests invite and they intercede. They pray. Priests enter into a process of standing between man and God and crying out for them. The author of Hebrews says, Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relationship to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now, we have a great high priest, the author of Hebrews goes on to say, who has offered up for once for all the great sacrifice, so we don't have to 
to do that. There's no more sacrificing that needs to be done, which is good news. But we still act on behalf of men because we follow a Savior who acted on behalf of men. And while we don't ourselves enact the same sacrifice, we intercede in that same way. So do you do that? Do you intercede for lost people? By name? By group? By neighborhood? We've invited the whole church to be part of the Bless Every Home prayer initiative, just for an example. Do you pray for your neighbors? By name? Do you walk your neighborhoods and do prayer walks? Do you ever look over the city and say, God, I, I, I pray for the people on the west side of Paso. The people in the apartment complexes over there and the people living up on the hills over there. Do, God, God, I pray for the people living on the horn streets. Short horn, long horn, all those horn streets down there off of Creston. Do you pray for the people who live in traditions? Or in the cottages? Do you intercede for lost people? Paul said this to the Romans. He says in Romans 10.1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Do you pray for lost people to get saved? Do you pray for laborers? In God's harvest field. Jesus said the harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. To send out laborers into his harvest field. Did he say pray. You know. Annoyed. Disappointedly. Do you pray earnestly. For God's workers in his harvest field. Sunday mornings you can join us. Right here. 950. We pray every single Sunday morning for God to send laborers into his harvest. So not just in theory, we have specific things we ask God to send his laborers into this harvest field for. We pray for people who speak multiple languages so they can communicate the gospel in multiple languages. We pray for God to send forth people who are creatively gifted so they can use their creative gifts in the service of the church. We pray for God to send forth technically gifted people so they can use their technical gifts for the good of the church. We pray for God to bring forth people who can lead and teach and disciple other people in God's word because we need those things and so do you. Do you pray for the laborers to enter in the harvest? Do you pray for gospel opportunities? This week, have you said, God, I want this week to share the good news of Jesus with at least one person, maybe one person every day? Paul did, Colossians 4.3. Pray also for us, he says, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. And you know why I think most of us don't pray these kinds of prayers? Because we don't actually want to declare the mystery of Christ. If God actually gave me an opportunity, then I might actually have to speak and tell people good news. Do you pray for boldness and power? You say, oh, I don't know, I'm scared and, and, and I don't know what to do and I, I'm imperfect and I'm weak. Do you pray for boldness and power? The early church did. You know, and by the way, I just want to point out this. 
the response in the early church to persecution was not to go and get their concealed carry permit. The response of the early church to the fact that they were being persecuted was to go home and pray. And here is what they prayed. Look in Acts 4.29. Now, Lord, you look upon their threats, and here's our response. God, strike them down and kill them all. That is not what they prayed. God, grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness. With boldness. While you, God, don't stretch out your hand to smite them, but to heal them. And signs and wonders are done in your name. When the church starts seeking dominion in this world through force, we deny the teaching of Jesus Christ. Our dominion comes through the word and through God's healing touch. That's the work of Jesus. So we pray for others. We intercede for them. And then we proclaim good news. We proclaim it. We speak it out. Peter connects this explicitly in verse 9. You are a royal priesthood, he says, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Did you ever connect that? You're a priest so that you can tell people about Jesus. You can tell them how amazing he is, how wonderful he is, how he changed your life, how he changed the life of your parents or your friends or your neighbors or your church. Can I tell you a story of a man who changed everything? I want you to meet him. Oh, he died, yes, but he walked out of that tomb. There's a grace that is given by God to his church that we might minister as ministers of Christ Jesus to the unbelievers of this world in the priestly service of the good news of God. So that as unbelievers, that's what, what Paul's talking about in Romans 15, and when he says Gentiles, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, made holy or sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Wouldn't you like to show up before your master on the day of your accountability and say, I could do nothing to earn my entrance. But every day you gave me, I worked to bring people to know and delight in you. Church, that's our calling, to be his priest. Let's pray for the grace to do that. Father God, take now these imperfect, broken, weak words Make them fruitful, I pray, for your glory, that people may delight in and praise you. I pray for anybody here that has never actually placed their faith, their saving faith in you, that today may be the day of their salvation. 
I pray that the overflow of the good news in our lives would be worship and praise and honor in every area of our life and that we would long for and desire to invite people to encounter you so we would build your church. We will intercede on their behalf. We will invite, we will draw people in and we will tell them the good news of your son. This is not too big of a work. It's the work you've been doing through your church throughout the centuries. We ask that you do it beginning with me and with each person here. And where we have failed you, we confess that and we cry out for greater grace and assurance of your pardon. And now as we come to your table, draw our hearts evermore to the grace that saves and changes us. In Jesus' name, amen.